Holy shit, we're back. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Sondheim on Adderall. Phone rings, door chimes. Here comes the company episode. Very excited for this one. One of my faves. Um, this is the first of these where I didn't have to do a lot of revisiting to have it fresh in my mind because the musical company is always fresh in my mind. It uh, lives there, rent-free. Heads up, folks, today is no ordinary day. Today is March 22nd, 2023. And I don't normally say the date at the top of these, but um, today happens to be the birthday of a gentleman named Stephen Sondheim. It's his posthumous 92nd? 93rd birthday. Right? He would have been 93. But he is no more. We lost him. At the age of 91. In the year 2021. And perhaps the only positive thing to come out of the loss of the great Stephen Sondheim is we will now no longer be subjected to Sondheim birthday concerts. I cannot hang with the Sondheim birthday concerts. They, they used to do them every 10 years. Uh, first one I saw or knew of was the 70th in the year 2000. Then certainly in 2010 you had the 80th birthday celebration. I remember seeing it. They broadcast it on PBS. I think we had an Audra McDonald situation in that one. I, I remember they brought out Chip Zine and Joanna... Fuck. The baker's wife. Joanna... Hang on. Gleason. Joanna Gleason. And the two of them sang It Takes Two from Into the Woods. And that was very sweet. Because we got to see them old. John McMartin, same. John McMartin came out and did um, The Road You Didn't Take. That's a nice song. Now, uh, in 2020, I don't know if you guys remember, we had a little situation where everybody had to stay indoors for a while. And <clears throat> Sondheim, uh, his birthday, falling as it does on the 22nd of March, was really right in the thick of that. So they organized this Zoom concert for Sondheim's birthday. And it was really interesting because there were disparate levels of uh, effort made by the people participating in that. I can't give you any concrete examples of this. I just, I noticed some people, like had a whole costume and had their song memorized and then some people appeared to be in their at their dining room counter reading off a sheet the part of that zoom concert i remember most clearly was a highly depressing performance by mandy patinkin standing in an open field looking really fatalistic and sad and singing lesson number eight. George looks around. George sees the park. He sees it dying. 
didn't care for that. But anyway, happy birthday, maestro. Let's get into this company episode. <sighs> One thing that I'm going to try not to do in this podcast is rampantly say sort of because I've realized that that is a crutch of mine. I sort of say sort of a lot. Uh, like that. I, I think it's an overcorrection. I think I'm trying to not say like because people of my generation tend to say like a lot as a placeholder. I've tried to conquer the um, which I said a lot in the first episode. Uh, kind of came back with a vengeance in the third one. There was a little one right there. I don't know if you caught that. It was more of an uh, but... I'm going to try to speak without using these things because I find them annoying when I listen back. And I want to be clear, I'm not sitting around listening to my own podcast 24 hours a day, except that I definitely am. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, there was a bombshell piece of Sondheim-related news this week. Let's go to the Sondheim on Adderall news desk to explore this a little bit further. Stephen Sondheim's final musical, entitled Here We Are, is hitting the stage in the fall. This is a thing that he was working on. It was originally called Square One, and uh, it was in the works right before he died. It was inspired by two Luis Buñuel films, The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie and The Exterminating Angel. I'm a bit of a Philistine, so I don't know. Uh, I haven't seen either of those. I've heard of them. I've heard of that first one. Um, so, shit, I did it with the um. Sorry. Uh, fuck! Okay, so... <laughs> now... I wonder... Well, something suspicious about this is the fact that it's going to be done off-Broadway for a strict... as a strictly limited engagement in September of this year. And it's kind of being rushed together... I just said kinda. That's not a lot better than sorta. I'm gonna stop worrying too much about these little faux pas and just talk. Because who the fuck cares? Here we are, Sondheim's final musical. Let's face it, this thing can only be a disappointment. Let's not get our hopes up. Now, as far as I'm concerned, the Sondheim canon ends in 1994 with passion. I am not familiar with Roadshow or whatever it ended up being called. The title changed a few times. It never properly went to Broadway. But I can't imagine that this unproduced musical by Sondheim will be as earth-shattering as we all want it to be, as Sondheim heads. So I'm going to go in with low expectations and hope that those low expectations are shattered. Hopefully it won't be along the lines of the Sopranos prequel movie where I went in with low expectations and it turned out to be much, much worse than I could have imagined. Sorry for anybody that enjoyed, what was that thing called? The Last Kings of New Jersey 
That's not, that's not it at all. <laughs> oh, the many saints of Newark. That's not that far off. Anyway, this last Sondheim musical. He hasn't had any content for 30 years. And I know that it's... I've heard it argued that you shouldn't call it content, that real artists don't use the word content, and it's only the managers and the producers and the suits that use that word. So whatever, that's a side issue. Why? Why, why, why did Sondheim live the last 27 years of his life without putting another show on Broadway? Maybe, just maybe, it's because his relationship status changed for the first time ever. Or rather, for the first time in his life, he lived with a partner. Good for him, bad for us. I'm not saying that's necessarily a thing that makes you not be able to generate art anymore. That would be a ridiculous claim. All I'm saying is that arguably the last good Sondheim musical, Assassins, was in 1990. And then in 1991, Sondheim lives with a partner for the first time in his life at the age of 61. You do the math, America. This podcast isn't about that. that this podcast is about company from 1970. Oh Christ, is it 1971? Give me a sec. Nope, I was right the first time. 1970, premiered on Broadway, April 26th, 1970. We're coming up on the 53rd anniversary of Sondheim's premiere at the Alvin Theater. <sighs> That's not really, it's not really worth celebrating it. That's an awkward number, but Brilliant show, brilliant music, enduring power. The whole thing is kind of built on a quote by Anton Chekhov, or rather it can be summed up by that quote by Anton Chekhov, which is something along the lines of, if you're afraid of loneliness, don't get married. At the end of the company chapter in Finishing the Hat, Sondheim says, Luckily, I didn't come across that quote till long after company had been produced. Chekhov said in seven words what it took George and me two years and two and a half hours to say less profoundly. That's George Firth, the book writer. If I'd read that sentence, I'm not sure we would have dared to write the show, and we might have been denied the exhilarating experience of exploring what he said for ourselves. So there you go. And I'm not sure that this is what the musical company is explicitly saying, but uh, that, that checkout quote, but it's along the same lines. We'll get into it. We'll talk about it. If you haven't seen or heard company, first of all, once again, this is my new favorite thing to say, pause your device right now and go immerse yourself in it. There are a lot of good entry points for company. When I was a youth in the mid to late 90s, getting into musicals one by one, discovering a whole world of musical theater history. The options for consuming this one were a bit impoverished. 
uh, all you really had on videotape would have been D.A. Pennybaker's documentary about the making of the original cast recording album, which has made it into the Criterion Collection, and rightfully so, it is a hell of a watch. If you love these songs, if you love the medium of sound recording, is that the right way to say that? If you love the 70s, if you love Elaine Stritch, if you love a good old documentary without all these bells and whistles and reenactments and horse shit that you'll see in a documentary these days, without animated sequences to, uh, you know, explain the genocide in Cambodia. Did I just throw shade at the documentary, The Donut King? I didn't mean to. I liked that documentary quite a bit. But anyway, check it out. Also, if you're a fan of the comedy show, satire, uh, Documentary Now, they have an episode, I want to say in the second season, maybe the third season, where they do co-op. Everybody knows this already, Chris. This is well known by everybody in your in-group. But um, it's great. It's really... That show is, is great. Whether or not you know the documentary that they're parodying... I knew this one backwards and forwards and upside down and in my sleep. And so I actually kind of felt frustrated watching it because I was like, hey, this is mine. Why are you sharing? <laughs> like I, I, I found the VHS tape of this at Eddie Brandt's Hollywood matinee video shop in the 90s and nobody else knew about this or was talking about that. Maybe they were, maybe they weren't talking to a middle schooler about it. But maybe they were. Maybe maybe I'm being a little uh, pretentious here by saying that this is my own little thing that I discovered. Because obviously other people know about it when that came out. I just think maybe there's a, there's a thing where when there's niche Sondheim information that people talk about, there's a part of me that feels uncomfortable because I'm like, I know that too, because I read all these books and I know all these things. And why are you saying that when I know this? <laughs> Which is, uh, if, if you have that impulse, you're probably not enjoying anything about this podcast because that's what this podcast is doing to you. So I'm sorry about that. And I relate to that feeling. Since my impoverished youth, <laughs> my youth that was marked by an impoverished availability of company content. There's that word again. There have been two filmed stage versions that are both worth seeing. There was the 20, 2006 version with Raul Esparza, where the characters played instruments on stage. More on that later. And then there's the 2011 version with Neil Patrick Harris and a star-studded cast, including Stephen Colbert, Patti Lapone, Martha Plimpton, and um, I liked that one. It didn't really add anything new to this situation, but I liked it. It was good. I tend to not enjoy Neil Patrick Harris as the spokesperson for musical theater because my vision of musical theater includes less metrosexually handsome looking people. I want a musical theater for the weirdos. And Neil Patrick Harris is just a little too easy on the eyes. 
I'd like to put a disclaimer here at the beginning of this episode. I have not seen Lady Company, the new one. It is coming to Los Angeles this summer, the Pantages Theater. I fully intend to see it. I have nothing against it, and I don't call it Lady Company resentfully with any um, ill will. I'm sure it's great. I've heard it's great. If you're not familiar, they there's a revival of Company right now where the leading role of Bobby, the central character, is played by a woman, uh, B-O-B-B-I, without the Y. And there are a few adjustments. The husband-wife thing is sometimes flipped, sometimes not flipped. And uh, our old pal Patty Lapone makes another visit, <laughs> uh, or she she's also she's in this. She plays Joanne. Joanne is still a lady, does not flip over. This is all just based on what I've heard. By the way, I don't know anything about it, really. But I'm looking forward to seeing it. Like I said, I tend to consume musicals based on... I'd, I'd like to imagine myself playing a part in it. And so the fact that I, uh, if this becomes the prevailing version of Company and I no longer will be allowed to play Bobby, getting a little old for it, to be honest with you, but I'd like to squeeze in a Bobby performance at some point before... I get too many more gray hairs on my head. Uh, I, I'd be disappointed if I couldn't, if uh, it would suddenly become an act of uh, misogyny to be a man trying to play Bobby. That would suck. But it, there are worse things that could happen in the world than that to me. So uh, who cares, really? That's become the catchphrase of this show. Who cares? Let me tell you a little bit about my personal experience with the musical company. It's, I have a rich history with it. A lot to go through here for anybody that cares. I first heard of it when my older sister, Hillary, went to go see it with our theater critic father at a 99 seat theater here in Los Angeles, put on by the West Coast Ensemble. They liked it a lot, my father bought my sister, the soundtrack on cassette tape, the 1970 original cast recording of which they made that documentary. I heard some of the songs hovering near my sister's room and in the car. And at one point, that production was still running and my dad took us all to see it, similar to what he did with Into the Woods around the same time or a little earlier. I went and saw it myself, loved every minute of it. That was a great company, the West Coast Ensemble. And uh, I wonder what happened to a lot of those people. I know what happened to one of them. Richard Israel, who played Paul in that production, is a, a dear friend of mine to this day, a friend and collaborator. I was obsessed with it. I, I, I loved it so much. I think I saw it a second time myself. There's a sex scene on stage in Company, and listen, let me just get this out of the way. I'm not trying to be creepy here, and I get that uh, it's not the point. You, what you need to understand is that when I was getting into Sondheim musicals, when I was starting to love Sondheim musicals, I was also entering my puberty years and starting to think that things like this were worth doing <laughs> so i was watching this show with these songs and these 
scenes and then there's a sex scene in the second act and I was just like, this play has everything. And the sex scene was like staged in a way that is perfect for, you know, a preteen <laughs> to appreciate because, you know, it's not hardcore pornographic sex. It's like the, a very uh, polite. Um... <laughs> anyway, it was uh, I remember thinking like because I was too afraid to ever I, I thought I'd be too afraid to ever have sexual intercourse. So I was thinking all I need to do is get cast in a show where there's a sex scene on stage because I'd be content with just pretending to have sex because that looked like a lot of fun. So TMI. Uh, I got the libretto for the show from the Los Angeles Central Library in downtown LA. Used to go to work with my dad. He was a lawyer downtown. And part of the, when I would go to his office with him when I didn't have school or whatever, we would spend the whole morning in his office and then we would go have lunch at mcdonald's and then we would go to the la central library we were, he would let me get books i haven't been to that library in a while but boy did i love it back then and i would always get a musical theater script libretto book and then treasure it for all time not for all time until its due date until i renewed it whatever so i took the libretto for company and i listened to the cassette tape of company and memorized it quickly just for my own purposes of pretending I was in it. I would go through those songs, the Bobby, 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 baby, Bobby, Bobby, the ones where everybody sings in counterpoint. And I would um, one at a time, like imagine myself as each male character and sing all of their parts. You know, do the whole song as Harry, do the whole song as David, do the whole song as Bobby, certainly. That would be self-defeating to not have a Bobby run at that. And and so on. And just always loved it. It's 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 uh, obvious why. It's really good. <laughs> now, um, did I really get company at the age of 12, 13? I thought I did. I think my parents talked about, you know, the songs Sorry, Grateful, and Being Alive, and how profound they were, and said... Oh, you'll understand those when you're older. I felt like I got them. Understanding deepened over time, like it did with all of these things. Those Into the Woods songs, for instance, like uh, I Know Things Now and Giants in the Sky, like thinking of the implications of that later in adulthood, obviously deepen your appreciation of them, but I felt like I got it. And what I, it was like the, the Chris, Chris Rock thing, where it's like, you got two choices, married and bored or single and lonely. I think that that's how I understood the theme of this show when I was a young man. Later on in life, I mentioned this a couple times, I was in two Sondheim anthology shows, putting it together and side by side by Sondheim, both of which uh, happened in the 2010s. We have to start having a better way of better label for that decade now that it's we're three years out of it the 2010s is a mouthful we came up with the aughts what are we going to call this who cares though that's for some other podcast to tease out not for this one both shows putting it together in side by side by sondheim my character sang marry me a little which is a one of my favorite Sondheim songs across the board. Uh, 
I played Man 2 in putting it together, and I played Man in Side by Side by Sondheim. I moved up in the world a little bit. Marry Me a Little sort of became my party trick. That was my moment in both shows, really. And I would use it for auditions, certainly for self-tape auditions. You don't want to go into an audition with the sheet music for Marry Me a Little and piss off the accompanist or emasculate him or her by assuming that he can play such difficult music on the piano. I'll talk a little bit later, a little bit more about my struggles <laughs> with the director and a disagreement over the purpose of that song, Marry Me a Little. I may or may not have been a pain in the ass about it. Now, I am a sometimes actor. I don't act for a living. I do musical theater locally. Not community theater. Like I try I I, I try to do things that are halfway decent. <laughs> and uh <laughs> anyway, um the last show that I did was early 2022, and it was the first show I had done in a long time because there was, I don't know if you heard about this, there was a global pandemic that we were all dealing with. And theater, musical theater especially, was a pretty dicey proposition because the respiratory droplets when one sings in a small space can be deadly. So 2022, I got cast in a production of Company, but not a local production. This production happened in Pullman, Washington. That's right, folks. If you've never been to Washington, this is uh, not the sexy, rainy side of Washington, not the Seattle West Coast of Washington. This is going to be on the eastern end of Washington, bordered with Idaho. Uh, in a part of the country known as the Palouse. That's right. The Palouse. Famous for hills and wheat fields. So, the circumstances of me doing this show were bizarre. Uh, first of all, I was cast as Peter. The least important husband in the show. Peter and Susan kind of are the least important couple. The most ill-defined. The least necessary. The least memorable. So I was disappointed, to say the least. But I went with it because I had not done theater in a long time. And it seemed like a good opportunity to go do some. And to see, to visit a part of the country that I'd never been to. Never been to the Northwest. Never had been until early this year. Last year, sorry. Early last year, 2022. Now, right before I left to do this production, I ended a relationship of eight years. An eight-year relationship came to an end. Which was just kind of an unlucky coincidence, you could say. Didn't plan it that way. I'd be crazy to plan something like that. But uh, that's what happened. And I... So when I first got there, it was so bleak and snowy and isolated and sad and scary that I almost bailed. I was plotting an escape. <laughs> I was living in a house with a very nice man who was very nice to open up his house to me uh, in his den on a um, 
a, a blow up twin mattress. And I was just so I had driven there because I'm deathly afraid of flying. So I took the per diem or the, the travel, whatever it would have cost for them to buy a plane ticket. I just took that in gas money, which didn't obviously make up for all the money I spent on gas. I definitely lost money doing the show. It lost income and lost uh, expenses, whatever. But um, I'm really glad that I stayed because it ended up being a very uh, rich, valuable life experience being there in Pullman doing company. But it's not the show that you want to... It's These are not songs you want to be hearing when you are uh, in a heartbroken situation. Put it that way. And if anybody knows that, it's Dean Jones. We'll talk about it. Uh, he's the original Bobby. So um, also, just as a side note, we for reasons that I do not understand to this second, we watched the video of our performance at the cast party. And uh, it was mortifying to me. One of my biggest weaknesses as a musical theater performer is I sing really loudly. That's my default, is to just be loud as fuck. I'm also way taller than everybody. So I was watching this and being like, Jesus, look at this asshole. He's a head taller than the rest of the cast, and he's the only one you can hear. And that asshole was me, Peter. Chris playing Peter. Let's talk about the original cast of Company and the writing process. So the book here is written by a new guy, a new guy in the story, uh, the, uh, George Firth. He was an actor that had started writing, and he had a bunch of one-act plays that were about marriage. Anthony Perkins, who played Norman Bates in Psycho, we all know, wanted to direct them. He sent them to his buddy, a little guy called Stephen Sondheim, just to see if he liked him, get his advice. Now nah, Sondheim liked him. He liked him enough to send him to his buddy, Harold Prince, director and longtime collaborator with Sondheim, who said, hey, listen, pal, we need to make these things into a musical. Sondheim said, really? Okay, fuck it. Let's do it. Norman Bates himself was going to play Bobby, Anthony Perkins, and he decided not to. Boy, that would have been interesting, huh? But he didn't. They uh, went with uh, Dean Jones of Disney movie fame. Which one is he in? Is it the, uh, not the absent-minded professor. The, du the ugly ductioned, ductioned? I never know how to say that word. Dean Jones. Who cares? Whatever. So, um... The cast, the rest of the cast of the original company, it's, I have their names in my head. Like they're all, uh, I can drop them at the drop of a hat. Test me. I don't know why. I think just because I was an obsessive child reading that libretto and on the first page it tells you who was in the original cast and in the liner notes of the album. So yeah. Oh, Jenny, that was Terry Ralston. No problem. Don't worry about it. Who played Sarah? That was that's uh, Barbara Berry, the famous Barbara Berry, from the film Breaking Away, and others. Who plays your husband, Harry? Well, I'll tell you. That's Charles Kimbrough. Uh, we lost him this year, by the way. R.I.P. Charles Kimbrough. He of Murphy Brown fame. Now, who plays Amy, the Getting Married Today lady? Well, that's going to be Beth Howland, my friends. Who's Beth Howland? Oh, she played Dingy on the TV show Alice. 
That's right. Now you might think, Chris, you're you're looking at Wikipedia and you're you're reading this. No, this is uh, I, I I got it all in my head. And I'm only saying, by the way, these are I, that's less impressive. These are the famous ones. Uh, who played uh, David, for instance? Why that was George Coe. Who the fuck is George Coe? I don't know. I saw him later in The Stepford Wives. The original only popped up in there in a minor role. I was like, well, that guy with the mustache. That's George Coe. I knew that. Because I'm co-dependent. Stupid. Uh, as we all know, Elaine Stritch is a icon. And she played Joanne. And probably the highlight of her career. Uh, if you ask me, I know she did things earlier in her younger years. But Elaine Stritch and company is kind of peak Elaine Stritch. Can we agree on that? Who else we got? Anybody worth mentioning? I mean, my point is I just have it all in my head and it doesn't go away. Susan Browning as April. I had a crush on her watching that documentary. Pamela Myers played Marta. The soon-to-be-famous Donna McKechnie from A Chorus Line. She played Catherine. Minor role. Arguably the smallest role. But not the least important. As we said before, Peter is the least important. Important, excuse me, least important. So um, anyway, my point is I accidentally have the original cast of Company memorized, for better or worse. There's not much I can do about it now. I can't seem to unmemorize it. But that's not uh, really doing any good rolling around in my head. But there it is. Michael Bennett was the choreographer for the original production, who uh, went on to create a chorus line. Company is not a dancey show, except for, you know, the second act, uh, What Would We Do Without You, which in our production, boy, boy, did that tire me out. We probably spent the most rehearsal time on that fucking song. And uh, that's a fun song to dance to, especially if you're like an oversized idiot like myself, because like I'm actually I'm pretty good at learning choreography because uh, I'm just good at following rules and remembering things. But uh, I feel self-conscious self about the way that I look when I'm dancing because I'm six foot five, 260 pounds. And everyone says, oh, what about Tommy Toon? Yeah, fuck Tommy Toon and fuck you. You ever actually watch Tommy Toon dance? It's offensive to the eyes. <laughs> With his enormous legs going around. He looks like an octopus. But anyway, my point is, what would we do without you? I think the point of that is that it's non-dancers. It's like these um, husband and wife types are doing a dance. So I could really commit to it. And that's how it's usually done when they do that song. I think that's the point of the choreography of that song is the point I'm trying to make here. Dean Jones, the original Bobby, quit the production midway through. The reason was uh, that he was he had just he was in the middle of a divorce. And it was uh, getting to him, doing the show that he considered to be anti-marriage. It was making him too goddamn sad. So he left, much like I wanted to leave the production in Pullman. He, uh, they lied and said that he had hepatitis. <laughs> and they brought in Larry Kurt, the original Tony from West Side Story. Larry Kurt, of course, is a Los Angeles native. Went to L.A. City College. 
Michael Bennett said that he preferred Dean Jones to Larry Kurt because Larry was like a pro. And when he did Being Alive, it was a showstopper. But when Dean did it, he like really suffered. It was like watching somebody suffer, which was more effective. Because Michael Bennett is a uh, sadist, apparently. RIP to Michael Bennett as well. Died young, sadly, as did Larry Kurt um, from uh, AIDS in the early 90s, or maybe even earlier for Bennett, but Larry Kurt died in the early 90s. My favorite Bobby, however, is Raul Esparza from the 2006 version. I don't know how much I love that production and the whole concept of the married people playing all the instruments on stage. It's kind of cool. I don't know if it's my favorite way of doing it, but Raul Esparza Spar- uh, <clears throat> is my favorite Bobby because he plays him as kind of an asshole. Like a detached asshole. And the show really at its core is about detachment. And you can kind of see why this guy is unmarried. Not because he's horrible to occupy space with, but because he seems so jaded and detached that it kind of makes more sense. So the themes of company are what make it kind of groundbreaking. Sorry about the kind of boy. I, uh, and the, the, sorry about that. Uh, here's a quote from Sondheim in the Craig Zaden book. He says, you never want to make a statement, but company did become controversial because it dealt with the increasing difficulty of making one-to-one relationships in an increasingly dehumanized society. And one of the reasons we had it take place in front of chrome and glass and steel was that it took place in an urban society in which individuality and individual feeling become more and more difficult to maintain. It's a lonely crowd syndrome. Now, I think it would be very pedestrian of me to point out that the relevance of this phenomenon is even bigger or even more. It's an even bigger issue now with the phones and blah, blah, blah. So I'm not going to point that out. I just did, but you, you get what I mean? This is... The alone together phenomenon. And it's not just the phones. I mean, that's a oversimplification. But uh, the, the way that we are increasingly detached. We all get it. You all get what I'm saying here. I wonder if this needs updating, you know, the, the, the company. Like, and I'm not saying that somebody should put on company and reimagine it. To and put iPhones in it. That's not what I'm saying. In fact, I'm a little sick of people doing that with everything. People should write new things. We don't need to see Othello in space. Or, you know, uh, Death of a Salesman, but uh, Willie Lohman is an app developer in Silicon Valley. Like, we don't need it. Write something new. But, so, but I'm saying someone should do that. Like, someone should make a, a modern equivalent of what company was doing in 1970. Because this thing about loneliness and what Sondheim in that quote I just said calls the lonely crowd syndrome. You know, 79% of adults aged 18 to 24 report feeling lonely. Which, by the way, compare that to only 41% of seniors aged 66 and older. And let me tell you something. It's not the pandemic, folks. This this problem predates the pandemic. Read uh, Susan Metis. Susan Metis? The Loneliness Epidemic. Now, I haven't read it. I haven't read that book. I heard her on a podcast talking about it. 
I tend to do that from time to time. I tend to listen to people interviewed on podcasts about books that they've written and then just sort of uh, quietly assume to myself that I've read their book. I heard her talking about it on Ezra Klein's podcast in the old days when it was a Vox podcast and not a New York Times podcast where, uh, pardon me, it was it was much better. It's a little annoying now. It's a little uh, just kind of an extension of what the New York Times wants you to do. Anyway, Another Hundred People, one of the best songs in the show. Uh, people interpret that differently or the tone of it. But yeah, I mean, if you think about Another Hundred People in terms of now, like online dating, and I should tell you from the outset, there have been one or two or three periods of my life where I became quasi-addicted to online dating. And uh, another, I mean, I can't imagine doing that in New York City, just the abundance mentality of it and the fact that there are all these goddamn people and everybody's, you know, you don't have to find each other in the crowded streets in the guarded parks anymore you can find them on the app and then you can meet them in the guarded park <laughs> and just tell them that you'll be uh in front of the rusty fountain next to the dusty tree the one with the battered bark every time they do company it's set in the 70s right and i get why they have to do that um it was obviously it was very modern in 1970 and because of the technology that's being referenced all the time like about answering services and things like that you know you, you kind of have to and it would seem wrong not to and you can't change the lyrics to not to be about voicemails and texts i get it who cares what the fuck i don't i get it who cares um my production of it was set in the 70s i stole the turtleneck that was my costume I tend to do that a lot, steal the costume that they give me, and you're not supposed to do that. But again, I'm 6'5", uh, uh, 260 pounds. Who else is going to wear that fucking thing? I wore a maroon turtleneck with a blazer over it, and that turtleneck is now in my drawer. So if you were part of that Pullman, Washington production of Company, um, come, come, come and get it. Bobby's 35 years old, and he's not married, and it's a situation. How does that make you feel, elder millennials like me? Turning 40 this year. And it's not just, oh, you know, he's uh, he should he should meet somebody. That'd be good. But, oh, he doesn't want to? Well, that's fine. To each his own. It's like, Bobby, what the fuck is wrong with you? Are you some kind of deviant? People are supposed to be married at your age. When Company came out, it was called a concept musical. It's a stupid name. I guess because it didn't have an active plot. People tend to call things concept albums when they shouldn't be called that. Labels. Who cares? Doesn't matter. And there's a lot about Company that's open to interpretation. Like the fact that there is no linear plot. Like what if it's all in Bobby's head, right? It's possible. What if these married friends don't exist? What if he's a profoundly lonely, morbidly obese man, and he's a shut-in, living in a New York City apartment, and he's talking to imaginary friends? Or what if he's like a long-time married person, and he's rewinding back to what made it might have been 
had he still been single at 35, at the old, old age of 35. Like I said, in the 2006 version, all of the married friends played, that the, they were the orchestra, they had instruments on stage. If you wanted to get cast in that thing, you better be quadruple threat, motherfucker. You're gonna have to sing, you're gonna have to dance, you're gonna have to act, and you're gonna have to be able to play an instrument. Perhaps a trumpet, perhaps a flute, maybe even a violin. These are examples of instruments. But that's a good argument for the theory that his friends aren't real. They're these entities inside of his head playing instruments in his ear. When this show came out, people said it was cold. It has no presence, no passion, no life. Just like poor George Seurat. And like, uh, you know who else gets a lot of the, this unfair criticism that his work is cold? Stanley Kubrick. A lot of people need you to draw them a map to how their characters are feeling. They need Spielberg to come in and they need their characters to squirt out some tears. Fuck them. <laughs> uh, I think in the ways that the show is is or isn't cold, I think it's on purpose and it's effective and I like it. In Finishing the Hat, Sondheim says, Company, in fact, was the first Broadway musical whose defining quality was neither satire nor sentiment, but irony. It was an observational musical told at a dry remove from beginning to end. So that's the point, critics. He also mentions in that section that um, most of his, most of the good Sondheim musicals, I think maybe between 1970 and 1980, like the, through the 70s, like all the, the ones he did in the 70s with Har were done with Harold Prince as the director and producer. And he says in this section that his collaborations with Harold Prince were good because Harold Prince was the ironist and Sondheim was the romantic. And it is interesting that Sondheim, who was unmarried up to this point and 40 years old, could channel all of this. Like I said, he didn't live with a partner until 1991 when the good musical stopped. So uh, he says that he interviewed people like Mary Rogers and some of his married friends and took notes. So that's cool. The fact the company has no plot like stresses people the fuck out. People can't handle it, especially critics in the 70s. Although the critics were mostly, the, the reviews were mostly good, as it turns out. It says uh, it got, Sondheim says it got him his first good reviews. But the people that hated it really hated it. That's when you know something is good, right? When it's polarizing and when it comes out, half the world says it's terrible and the other half says it's genius and then you wait 30, 40 years and then everybody agrees it's genius or most people do. But we shouldn't throw the word genius around like the, like the other Sondheim podcast does. <laughs> or we shouldn't overuse the word Sondheim says, it made a lot of grown-ups who had disdained musicals take them seriously, and it not incidentally gave me my first good notices. You know, that's great. I've spent years 
me, this is me, Chris, talking now. I'm no longer quoting Sondheim. I've spent years trying to get people to take musicals seriously. I don't know why. I don't know why I don't just leave everybody alone and let people feel free to not enjoy musicals on any level. But it bothers me that the crowd-pleasy ones are the ones that are done. And shows like this are seldom done. <laughs> because... Who decided that they have to be trivial, crowd-pleasing things? It's just, as, as a mode of storytelling, there are so many possibilities. It can be done and has been done so well. But those are the ones that don't ever really get put on. So I guess I want them to be. So I want the world to take notice of things like Company and the end of Pippin. Because they're... You could just do so much with a musical. Throw away the top hat and cane already. And let's talk about existential loneliness. <laughs> there are top hats and canes, by the way, in company. So they, they managed to do both. Good for them. Here's a very funny and confusing quote from a bad review in variety from the original production. It's evident that the author, George Firth, hates femmes and makes them all out to be conniving, cunning, cantankerous, and cute. As it stands now, it's for ladies' matinees, homos, and misogynists. What? The fuck? What does that mean? I don't know. Um... And that's funny. So it makes women out to be conniving, cunning, cantankerous, and cute. Uh, what else is there? And I don't mean just for women, for all of us, for human beings. Don't, aren't we all one of those four things? <laughs> now, if I had uh, any cachet in this business of podcasting, or if I had any like-minded friends that were into Sondheim musicals, I would ask a woman what they felt about this. And here's the thing, um, I make a, I'm making a real effort, especially now in my uh, older years, to add some more diverse voices to my bookshelf and to get out of the white male dry thing. And that has sort of been a touchstone for me is the white male dry thing. And it's no surprise because guess what? I'm a dry white male. And... A lot of times you like things that you relate to. And so uh, some of the things that I've liked over time, there's been this criticism. So here, here's what I'm trying to say. So like, uh, let's just say, for instance, Judd Apatow comedy films. Like I was really into those when they came out. I thought that Knocked Up was the funniest thing I'd ever seen. I was very stoned at the time. It was my last year of uh, drinking and drugging. But I... I like had the best time ever at the movie theater stoned watching the movie Knocked Up. And I particularly thought that the female characters were like so well written, you know, warts and all. And I loved them. Like I loved, I love Leslie Mann in that film. But the criticism of, uh, you know, people have criticized that saying that the women were um, painted as shrewish and neurotic. But... I don't know. Isn't that better than just being male gaze? 
I guess they need to be stories written by women. This is, I'm getting down a rabbit hole of fucking nothing right now that uh, can only lead to trouble. Same thing with Jonathan Franzen books, by the way. Got criticized for writing women as being neurotic messes, but I like neurotic mess. I'm a neurotic mess, you know? And uh, I, I, I kind of like women that are neurotic messes too. Not because I want to change them or fix them, but just because, God damn it, it's hard being a human being. And people that don't find it hard are fucking boring. Do we have to write a book about them? Or see a movie about them? Or a musical about well-adjusted, non-neurotic people? No thank you. I'm out. The failing New York Times said that the characters were unlikable. Shut up. That's a lazy criticism of anything also. The characters were unsympathetic, really. Like, I can get not wanting to spend an evening with somebody that's, like, gratingly unsympathetic. Like the movie The Doors. I don't want to see Val Kilmer's Jim, Jim Morrison for that long and hang out with him because it's obnoxious and grating. But you can have unlikable characters that you like to watch. And that it, it doesn't even need to be, you know, you don't even need to love to hate them. You can full out hate them and have a good time. <laughs> anyway, the script of this musical, the book, the scenes are really funny. I'll say that. Um... And funny, for the most part, in ways that are, uh, stand the test of time. I think the best one is the earliest one, the Harry and Sarah scene with the karate and the eating and the drinking. The eating and the drinking. You got what I'm saying? One of the, Harry is, uh, sober. Sarah is trying to not eat cupcakes. And then they have a karate fight. It's a funny scene. It's apparently the only one of George Firth's original scenes that made the cut. Most of which, most of them, he he wrote mostly new stuff, except for that one, and then half of the scene with David and Jenny with the pot, the smoking pot. Like I said, you know, Peter and Susan suck <laughs> as a couple in this, and I was I played Peter. They have these two unnecessary scenes on their balcony that no one cares about. And get this, the second one. So most of every couple has like their big meaty scene. You know, Harry and Sarah do karate. David and Jenny have the pot. Fucking Paul and Amy are getting married today. Joanne and Larry are in the bar and the ladies who lunch and the whole thing. Uh, Peter and Susan have this very short scene in the first act where it's like, hey, we're getting a divorce, but hey, we're happy about it. Ha ha ha. And it's weird. And then in the second act, they're like, hey, we're divorced, and uh, how you doing? There's uh, a second half to that scene in the second act that is cut from the licensed versions where Peter makes a homosexual pass on Bobby. Now, I guess I had known at some point that that had been cut. I saw, the first time I saw it, that was still in, and it's a weird scene. I guess it should be cut. And there are arguments to be made about how it didn't age well and it's offensive, blah, 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 blah. I'm not gay. It's not my argument to make. I will say 
what is weird about it. I think that it's it it speaks to a very 1970 concept of homosexuality that's just like, hey man, I'll fucking try anything. I'll just do some lewds, I'll do some acid, and I'll be gay, you know. And then I just I'm a free spirit, baby. Less tied to identity and more just like, yeah, I'm gay because I'm out there. <laughs> so Peter comes on to Bobby. The weirdest thing about the scene to me, I think, or especially when I was a preteen, is so Peter says, uh, Robert, have you ever had a homosexual experience? And then it's like, haha, funny, awkward. And then Robert, Bobby says, uh, as a matter of fact, I have. That's a bombshell, dude. Like, what? What's up? Really? Because, again, I think it's like mid-hippie era. Being gay or trying out being gay is just something we're all going to try, and it's less of a whatever. And then, so when I did it, I forgot that that was cut. They sent me the script. And I was like, I don't even need to read this. I basically have this fucking thing memorized from childhood. And then I got to that scene. I was like, oh, shit. Peter's only interesting moment is cut out of this. It's even worse playing Peter now than I thought it was. I memorized my lines. And I, uh, they told us to memorize all of our lines before we were right because it was a short rehearsal process. And then on my way to Pullman in the car, I got an email saying, Hey, so uh, there's the scene that was cut and we kind of want to put it back in. So here it is. <laughs> so I had to quickly learn that scene and we left it in. And I think that maybe my favorite thing in the theater or in um, storytelling is uncomfortable moments like that. So regardless of whether it works or not or whether it's out of place or weird or confusing, I enjoy it. And I enjoyed doing it. I was glad that we kept it in. The scene with Catherine, one of Bobby's, the, the women that Bobby's dating, it's kind of a uh, dramatic scene where she that takes him to a park and that she, and she says a whole thing about how she's going back to Cape Cod and getting married and giving up the New York swinging single life. <laughs> People love that scene. Um, and it's a good scene, I guess. I didn't get it when I was younger. And maybe I wasn't supposed to get it because I was a little, little kid. I think maybe New York theater people love it. A lot of the people in this show that I did were had flown in from New York. I was the only person that drove in or came in from L.A. And then there was one guy from Montana randomly. And then a few locals in the town. But uh, leaving New York like uh, as, as a moving idea of just giving up and going back to your hometown and not staying. Like that really tugs at people's heartstrings. And let me tell you something. Let's normalize this for Los Angeles. I'm a Los Angeles native. Yes, we do exist. The city is not only populated with people who came here from Texarkana with big dreams of the silver screen. So let's, let's make this a moving heroic thing to leave New York and go back to your hometown. Let's, let's unclog some of these freeways. LA transplants, guess what? Pilot season's coming to an end soon here in May. Let's let's give up. Let's give up and go home. Take your ball and go home. No questions asked. No judgment. Be like Catherine.
I kind of do want to go song by song through this one because all of the songs here are like one act plays, which is the first time Sondheim really does this. And they're all good. I'm not going to go in order and I'm not, I, I, I won't talk about all of them, but um, so the ladies who lunch, I'm not going out on the limb here and saying anything creative. It's a masterpiece. It's a great song written for Elaine Stritch and she is so good at it, obviously, obviously, obviously. But I've seen this show done a few times at various um, tiers of professional. This song can easily be ruined. The character of Joanne can easily be ruined when people play it as tragic. I saw Company a few years ago, and uh, yes, the, the, the whole Joanne scene, first of all, it was like twice as long as it normally is because this actress was playing each thing like it was like we were watching the TV show Intervention and somebody hitting rock bottom. And we, instead of laughing at the outrageousness of this woman who, you know, is fucked up. She's a drunk and she's <laughs> whatever. Uh, we, we were supposed to really be like, oh, oh, this is very dramatic. And I sat there with clenched fists thinking they just don't get it. Like, imagine if Elaine Stritch played it that way. What a waste that would have been. The opening number of Company is invigorating. It's ingenious. I love, you know, how many times the Bobby Baby Bobby Bobby counterpoint repeats. I never get sick of it. And they do it a lot. Open the show, or open the first act, close the first act, open the second act, close the second act, and then a bunch of times in between, before Have I Got a Girl for You, before Being Alive. And if you're one of those people, if you're Peter, the husband that doesn't matter, it's not like it's the same thing each time either. You got to watch for those little changes. <laughs> it's, uh, it's great. I like a lot of people singing at the same time. Sondheim has a thing about this, and I don't have it at my fingertips right now, but maybe we'll talk about it, uh, I think, uh, when, when we get to Sweeney Todd, like on God That's Good, where he, and I don't want to misquote the master here, but he says that he only has everybody singing in unison. Well, whatever. Like, he only has everybody singing in unison when everybody is truly saying and believing the same thing, but that seldom ever happens. So he always, whenever there's a group singing, there's usually, like, uh, chaos and counterpoint and different people saying different things. It's like the musical version of a Robert Altman film, like Nashville, where uh, it's, it's sort of a mess because people are speaking at the same time, but it's also um, more real. Whatever. My least favorite songs in the show, and I've mentioned before, uh, I don't like pastiche. I don't like when Sondheim does pastiche, when he does songs that are nods to earlier eras and genres of music. The two examples of this are the aforementioned What Would We Do Without You and You Could Drive a Person Crazy. Now, that's not to say I don't like these songs. I like them a lot. And I did. I was not aware of the Andrews sisters as a phenomenon, as a, as a style, when I was a preteen getting into company. And so I was totally cool with that song. In fact, it was one of the few uh, songs that I did not skip 
because it had no male parts I could sing and pretend that I was in. And you, you, you know that a song is good if Chris is not skipping it and there's nothing for him to sing in it. This is an example of that. That also happens with Superboy and the Invisible Girl and Next to Normal. I'll listen to that one instead of singing along to it in the car. And uh, Worst Pies in London, Sweeney Todd. Bunch of examples of this. Th this is one of them. I like the harmonies in the doo 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 doo. <laughs> yeah, the pastiche thing. So it's. It, let, let, let's step outside the realm of musicals for a minute. Piano players. I'm a piano player. I basically molded my whole style after Ben Folds, Selton John, Billy Joel. And one thing the piano players love to do is play dress up and do pastiche. There's always. It's usually filler where there's a song or two on the album where they're indulging in this throwback thing or pretending that they're doing samba or uh, something else. Something besides the thing that they do that we love. Elton John, for instance, does, you know, Saturday Night's All Right for Fighting because he's like, let me try to be the Rolling Stones for a second here. Let me stop being the piano man for a second. Billy Joel, uh, that's a bad example because Billy Joel's Innocent Man album is all 1950s pastiche and a lot of that is his most famous, most memorable stuff. But if you listen to an album like Turnstiles, which has amazing songs like Summer Highland Falls, my favorite Billy Joel song, like most of the rest of it is, not most of the rest of it, there's, there's songs on that album that are him pretending to be in a different genre of music. And I think maybe it has something to do with all these guys. Like it has something to do with the fact that the piano contains an entire orchestra and you have more colors on the palette. But I always like it when people don't do that. And like I said, I like Sondheim songs that are not trying to be versions of older songs which is what most of follies is it's what you could drive a person crazy is i like it when he's just writing music that mirrors the tone of the character and has no genre and that's a thing that i will stand by there's a song that's cut from the show that was replaced with being alive it's called happily ever after it's dark as fuck i love it not because i'm a emo goth sad sack but um it just it's interesting it drives the theme home that a person can avoid committing to someone because of distractions and the distractions that Sondheim points out here are drugs drinking and chrome and glass in cars who gets distracted by glass that's weird and again, I'm not going to insult you by pointing out that this is even more of a thing now. Gen Z, they don't have relationships. They don't have boyfriends, girlfriends, partners. And they can get all their food door dashed to them. Why get married when there's DoorDash and Pornhub? Uh, you can listen to every song ever made and every watch every movie ever made. And the song Happily Ever After taps into that, but a very early version of that in 1970. This relates to a quote by the late David Foster Wallace when he talks about pornography. He says, yes, you're performing muscular movements with your hand as you're jerking off, but what you're really doing, I think, is you're running a movie in your head. 
you're having a fantasy relationship with somebody who is not real strictly to stimulate a neurological response. So as the internet grows in the next 10, 15 years, he wrote this in the late 90s, and virtual reality pornography becomes a reality, we're going to have to develop some real machinery inside our guts to turn off pure unalloyed pleasure. Or, I don't know about you, I'm going to have to leave the planet. Because the technology is just going to get better and better, and it's going to get easier and easier, and more and more convenient, and more and more pleasurable to sit alone with images on a screen given to us by people who do not love us, but want our money. And that's fine in low doses, but if it's the main basic staple of your diet, you're going to die. In a meaningful way, you're going to die. Oh, sends a chill down my spine even reading that out loud. I did a little uh, copy and paste <laughs> into my notes when I was like, oh yeah, it's like that quote, and I didn't really uh, sit with it until now, but... Whoo! 1997, he wrote that. And Sondheim wrote Happily Ever After in 1970. And now, nobody's talking to each other, really. I was a, uh, when I was directing children in Anything Goes, we did a break time where everybody went outside. And these little fifth grade boys were, each one of them, I went outside to tell everyone to come back in. And the fifth grade boys were all sitting with Chromebooks by themselves. It was chilling. This is not a novel insight. I get it. I'm just saying. <laughs> Sondheim was trying to warn us about something. But those motherfuckers made him cut the song and replace it with being alive. Happily Ever After was supposed to be followed by a extra scene at the end where Bobby is full of despair and goes to Central Park instead of his birthday party, his surprise party. And he meets a whole bunch of new people that are played by the people in the show wearing different outfits. And he's supposed to make a connection with some woman. And <sighs> Sondheim thinks that being alive is a cop-out. And he's right. Now, being alive is a great song. I get it. When I was in Washington doing this show, I guess, like, I kept sort of la trying to latch onto it and try to feel something since I was post-breakup. And I thought it would, I thought it would really make me feel something. But it didn't come across to me. Pretty song. It's a ubiquitous in our culture now, or at least among the musical theater set. But no. Marry Me a Little, I think, is preferable to me. I love Marry Me a Little. I just like the uh, riff of it. I like the lyrics in it. But they cut it from the original production because they thought it was too complex for the audience to understand. They thought that the audience wouldn't understand that Bobby was lying to himself in that song at the end of the first act and that it was uh, the character or, or that it was an example of the character knowing too much too soon but they put it back in in the revival and I think people get it now you know who doesn't get it is the director of one of those Sondheim anthology shows I was in I don't want I'm not here to slander anybody but uh, I had a bit of a tiff with the director over that song and like I said, I tend to think that actors should keep their mouths shut and just do as they're told. <laughs> but uh, I'm also 
pretty self-righteous uh, and I'm a hypocrite. And as we have learned, I have a lot of opinions about Sondheim songs. I had a big one about this song. The way that this director wanted me to stage it was uh, she wanted me to get down on one knee and propose to my love interest in the show while singing Marry Me a Little. And I argued that that was not really what the song was about. Um, as Sondheim says in Finishing the Hat, what it really is, is it's an internal monologue of despair and self-deceptive determination. So to propose to somebody singing Marry Me a Little is, uh, to me, it's silly. But Sondheim anthology shows are silly. And I'm, I tease this one more time. I promise you an episode uh, all about those anthology shows, putting it together and side by side by Sondheim. It's, uh, they attempt to do what jukebox musicals attempt to do, and no one should attempt to do it. To shoehorn meaning around a song that was written with a whole other meaning. This is particularly egregious in the Green Day musical American Idiot because, you know, some people say, I'll do, I'll do the Fox News uh, tactic of adding editorial to journalism. <laughs> uh, some people say that the sentiment of Billy Joe Armstrong's songs for Green Day is a little trite and is a little stupid and is bad. <laughs> And actually uh, sort of has the tone of uh, poetry, but is actually empty angst. And so in that sense, it's like easier to write a story around it because it actually means nothing in the first place. Except, you know, rage and love, man. <laughs> it's all about rage and love. <laughs> so, uh, but you really ruin a Sondheim song if you try to put it in a you know, dinner party where it doesn't belong, which is what putting it together does. Piece of shit. Boy, I got madder about putting it together than I thought I would. Uh, Getting Married Today is uh, one of the top songs from this. That is great. I love uh, I love being with people when they hear Getting Married Today for the first time and seeing the the the, the trick of it, the the whole the, the conceit of that song. It's fun. That's fun. It's a, uh, you know, it's it's along the line. It's consistent with what you might find in a 90s romantic comedy. And uh, I'm not anti-90s romantic comedy. I enjoy them uh, from some of them. And it doesn't aspire to be more than that. But it's 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 the, the way that the music and the lyrics, oh, whatever. I'm saying obvious things. Every time I say things that are obvious, I exhaust myself. And that's why I do that, make that sound. People tend to fuck up this song, Getting Married Today. I mean, um, melodically, because at first glance, or at first listen, it sounds like it's going right? But it's actually, if you look at the notes, it's going and you don't really catch that because it's going so fast. That's the point. If you don't know that, that song goes fast. If you don't know the that song, it's a fast, it's a patter song. 
Appreciate you going. Even more amazing about this. Whatever to Paul. I obviously can't do it. I could if someone some gave me a chance. But the yeah, the it's it's um it's hard. And so people send and say, well, they're not gonna hear those notes anyway, so I'll just go, I'll just do what it sounds like. And it's been suggested that Sondheim was being a nitpicky about that in the documentary to Dingy <laughs> Beth Howland when he was showing her the notes. And it's like, who the fuck are you? You don't get it. If she hadn't sang the notes that way, it wouldn't have been as cool. Even if it doesn't seem like that big a difference, you dumbass. <laughs> Carol Burnett really fucked this up too. Like uh, the, she was in the uh, uh, one, some iteration, iteration of putting it together. She sang that song. And I think what fucked up, first of all, they slowed down the tempo, which is a total dodge and a cheat. But also they, the whole thing was she's an older woman and they said, ah, they, she remembers her, her wedding day. And then they cut to that song. And that kind of robs the song of its stakes. If you know that, it's not happening in real time. It's not immediate. And it's like an older woman recalling when she felt this way. Anyway, the woman that did it in the Sondheim anthology show I was in, <laughs> she at one point during rehearsal turned to all of us and said, I am a musical theater warrior. Unironically, by the way. And uh, yeah, I thought she was kidding, and but yeah, you know, she she meant it. She really thought thought that she was a musical theater warrior. So, I hope she's still out there fighting the good fight. Sondheim on why that song doesn't rhyme. So there are no rhymes in that, and he says that if there were rhymes, then Amy's disordered thinking would not have come across. The fact that that doesn't rhyme makes it seem more unhinged. God, that's fucking smart. He knows a thing or two, this Stephen Sondheim. Another hundred people. It took me a few years to appreciate. It's a beautiful song. I love the way Pamela Myers sings it on the original cast recording and in that documentary. I'm less appreciative of the way the woman sings it in the 2006 one. I don't remember other versions of this. I think in the mid-2000s, there was a style of Broadway singing that has thankfully gone away that to me just hit my ears weirdly. And I'm not going to say it was bad singing because, again, I think that's a stupid thing to say. I think that there are different singing styles, so ways of singing that go in and out of fashion. The Little Things You Do Together, there's a very fun story about that, by the way, an incredibly fun story about the writing of that song. That's the uh, little things you do together, do together. Well, first of all, Sondheim says that he regrets that he employed, quote, crowded and incessant rhyming in that song. And he uses that as an opportunity to, to shit on Ira Gershwin. He hates how Ira Gershwin rhymes so crazy. You know, rhyming poison is what he calls it. But anyway, so when he wrote that song, he was sailing on the Queen Mary on a transatlantic voyage. And the purser gave him a room with a piano so he could work on shit. 
And uh, the, the, the reason there are so many plinks in that song is because the ship kept listing to starboard. And so he kept, <laughs> he kept uh, sort of sliding up to the, to the treble uh, for the plink. That's funny, right? That's interesting. It's a good story. It's in Finishing the Hat. Pick up a copy of Finishing the Hat if you haven't read it. If you're somebody that likes to write songs or is interested in how songs are written, lyrics specifically, pick it up. And then if you like that, buy the sequel. Look, I Made a Hat. Very important books to me when they came out. Someone is Waiting. Uh, that song's a waste of time. Can we agree on that? It's fine. It just says all the women's names. Someone is Waiting that's warm as this one and tender as this one and crazy as this one. The song Barcelona is a win. It's amazing. I love it. The whole mythology around that is that he wrote it in like one afternoon. People find that fascinating, but I kind of get it. I'm not Sondheim level by any means, but I like to write fast. And I feel like some of my best songs have been done quickly in an afternoon. Lynn Benwell Miranda has a whole thing about how it took him years and years and years to just write my shot. And, you know, that's that's also cool, I guess. <laughs> but um, I like to write fast. And Sondheim does too, I guess. He says he's lazy, and I think that he spends most of his time not writing. Like, spends more time not writing than he spends writing. Or spent. He's dead. Sondheim is dead, by the way. I don't know if you guys knew that. The documentary about the original cast recording. Boy, this is a long episode. I apologize. I have a lot to say about Sondheim, obviously. We're coming in for a close sooner rather than later here. <clears throat> the documentary about Company by D.A. Pennybaker, who made the Bob Dylan documentary. Worlds colliding there. Two of my personal heroes, Dylan and Sondheim. Pennybaker, it's, it's so exciting to watch that thing. It's insane, first of all, that when they did... I don't know if they still do this. When they do original cast recordings, they have a whole fucking orchestra in there playing along with the singer. And if the singer makes a mistake, it's like, cut, everybody stop. And the conductor is like, okay. The fact that Elaine Stritch kept getting it wrong and couldn't get it right. And they were just like, this is, it's late. We got to send everybody home. We're going to record an orchestral track and then bring you in tomorrow to sing over it. I'm amazed that they didn't just do that for all of it. That must be really expensive to keep the whole orchestra there the whole time. And uh, to record voice and plus every instrument simultaneously. I don't know how these things work and I shouldn't speculate. Thomas Z. Shepard, the record producer, is a hilarious asshole in this. He makes so many... Uh, sarcastic remarks Sondheim is a bit of a caricature in it he's uh moping around in a black turtleneck and he's always smoking a cigarette and he looks like he's uh about to uh recite the to be or not to be speech and <laughs> once they actually talk to him or if he's giving notes to actors like he seems like he's being perfectly normal and friendly it's just his whole vibe in that is really just no, oh, yes, the genius has arrived. Uh, that uh, John Mulaney did a, you know, in the documentary now parody of it, John Mulaney played the, the Sondheim figure. And that was funny, I guess. 
I never really got into John Mulaney like everyone else. I like stand-up, but I, uh, John Mulaney is a lot of people's favorite stand-up, and maybe I need to give it another try. Elaine Stritch having that Ladies Who Lunch meltdown is amazing. Do I overuse that word? But she's the, the obviously the best part, and I just saw it in my TikTok feed the other day, just a clip of it, and I saved it just because I never get sick of it. When she screams at herself in the playback, where she goes, wrong! And then goes, ah, shut up! It's great. A couple fun side notes here. Um, the Craig Zayden book is, it's a lot about, a lot of it's, it's mainly about process, right? Like it's about um, the process of putting the thing together, the show. And I get the company kind of came up like materialized while Sondheim was trying to get Follies made. It was called The Girls Upstairs at the time. But also in the middle of that, there was the show that never came to fruition that sounds really interesting to me. And boy, would I have loved to have been a fly on the wall when they were making this thing. So it's based on a one act play by Bertolt Brecht called The Exception and the Rule. Sondheim hates Brecht, and so he didn't want to do it. But then John Guare came in as the book writer, and he really liked John Guare's concept. And Leonard, Leonard Bernstein was then came on as the composer, and Sondheim was going to do the lyrics again and shoot himself in the foot once again. And, but uh, this was what Guare says the idea of it was. He says, The setting of the show was a play within a play in a television studio. It was supposed to deal with the idea that in 1968, having good intentions was not enough, and that it was presumptuous and hilarious to expect that showing man's inhumanity to man would change anything in the world. And by the way, like, let me point, th th this was in 1968 that they were writing this. I can't imagine that would have gone over well. <laughs> but it sounds incredible, and I really wish that I could, they wrote eight or nine songs, he said, and I wish I could hear them. I wish I could uh, see it. I wish it had happened. And that idea is like, I, I, it doesn't sound like uh, anything to really tether a whole musical to, maybe because it's, well, it's an uncomfortable idea, but it's an idea that I share. It's an opinion that I share. And it has really decayed now in the political landscape. I mean, it's all about awareness raising now to no practical purpose. Or like, it is all just, hey, I see you. Hey, share this. And it's not no way less direct action. Oh, well, what the fuck am I doing? So who am I to say that? And there are people that are doing direct action that are out there blowing up pipelines rather than uh, telling everybody to raise awareness about unplugging chargers to save the planet. And that's great. Good for them. But I'm just talking about the discourse. This is way off base here way off uh, track rather Sondheim became ashamed of what he wrote and he said that it was quote arch and didactic in the worst way unquote Sondheim's not very political and uh, but also you know I the, the, the theater should not be I or it should but I mean uh, that to be that explicitly political I could I understand how it could not age well and that's fine I still want to see it I want to hear it I also just think it's interesting to think about how Sondheim lived through the counterculture of the 60s and he was in his 30s 
and I guess he was like a little older, but he didn't participate in it because he was, you know, he was, he says himself, he grew up rich, he's privileged, and he's in this theater circle. So, uh, yeah. One last final anecdote. When I did this show, uh, Company, in Pullman, Washington, <laughs> the, uh, the, the, there was a New York City skyline uh, backdrop on the stage that included, of course, the Twin Towers because our play was set in the 70s. And the woman who played Joanne, she was very funny on a personal level. And she said uh, one time at a party where we were all hanging out, that she was tempted to, um, when she got to the end of the ladies who lunch and started singing Rise, 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 she should have turned around and sung it to the Twin Towers. Boy, what a note to end on. That is awkward. Okay, well, uh, I'm really, this has been a long one. Thank you for sticking in it, in it with me for this long. Final thoughts on company. It's, it's great. There should be more musicals like it. There have been more musicals like it. There should continue to be more musicals like it. And less karaoke hell like Mamma Mia. And less meta musicals like The Drowsy Chaperone. Oh, well, that's a good one. <laughs> I don't have... Uh, my opinions on, on these things are not static. I, they, they conflict from time to time. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been Sondheim on Adderall, the company edition. Join us next week, where we're not going to talk about Follies, I don't think, because I've never actually seen it. I've only read it and heard it, and I know about as much about it as you can, having not seen it. But I also don't have very strong feelings about it. I think what we're going to do, folks, if it's okay with you, is we're going to skip right over that and talk about A Little Night Music, which is a terrific and, in retrospect, creepy musical by Stephen Sondheim. And until then, folks, let's look up a closing quote. Um, a Sondheim quote regarding goodbyes and things being over. I'm going to find one here. I'm going to use a different website because there, um, there must be, here we go. I guess this is goodbye, old pal. You've been a decent podcast audience. I hate to see us run out of time. Old pals. Someday you'll tune back in. This one sucks. I'm going to stop this one and just cut my losses. But I'll see you soon again. And I hope that when I do, it won't be on a plate. It won't be on a plate. Good night. And good luck. <laughs>